0: Welcome to you Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Damian Radcliffe, the Carolyn S. Chambers Professor in Journalism at the University of Oregon. He's an affiliate faculty member in the Middle East and North African Studies Program and the Agora Journalism Center, as well as a research associate in the Center for Science Communication Research. His research focuses on the usage of social media and wider trends in local media, technology, and the business of media and journalism innovation. Before joining the UO in 2015, Professor Radcliffe worked for four years in commercial radio in the UK, eight years with the BBC, four years at the UK communications regulator, Ofcom, and three years for Qatar's Ministry of Information and Communications Technology. Radcliffe continues to be an active journalist. He's been a columnist for the leading tech outlet ZDNet and the Donald W. Reynolds Journalism Institute at the University of Missouri. He also writes regular features for the International Journalists Network, What's New in Publishing, journalism.co.uk, and other outlets. Radcliffe writes about digital trends, social media, technology, the business of media, and the evolution and practice of journalism. Thanks, Damien, for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for inviting me. So first, tell us a little bit about your background.
1: You 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 clearly have an English accent. So tell us about (laughs) yourself. Yes, I do, and the English teeth to go with it. (laughs) Um, So I think you know you're. Uh, introduction kind of really kind of nicely set the scene really I mean I I started my career in commercial radio as you said and then I think one of the things that's really interesting about my kind of resume my CV and probably one things that's quite unique is that I've worked across all media platforms and also across all sectors so I started in commercial radio then I moved to radio television this newfangled thing called online and new media but I've also worked in print and in magazines and done that for commercial media public media NGOs, regulators, and now academia. So uh, I think it gives me quite a unique perspective in terms of the media landscape and the kind of different facets that contribute to it. So what led to your interest in journalism? why did you become a journalist? That's a great question. Um, if you ask my mother, she will tell you that as soon as I could lift my head up, I would be poking my head around the uh, cot and wanting to kind of see what was going on. So I think she'd say I was uh, curious or nosy pretty much kind of from the, from the get-go, and uh, I think that's probably true. I think that's what kind of incentivized me to kind of uh, to do journalism, and one of the reasons why I still love doing it is meeting new people, learning new things, being exposed to new ideas and places, and it was something I I'd kind of always wanted to do. I remembered uh, when we got this, uh, in, this date in the, in the diary, in the calendar, that I had at middle school edited the middle school paper. I edited the yearbook when I was at high school and also did a satirical magazine which was called The Bishop's Underpants. The school was called uh, Bishop Luffer. Um And uh, I always kind of wanted to do it but was also a little bit resistant to it. I mean, it's probably hard to tell looking at me now, but as a teenager, I was all about sports. And then I dislocated my knee when I was about sort of 14, 15, and I had to suddenly find a new hobby. And I chanced upon this thing that I think is pretty unique to the UK, not really, doesn't really exist in the US, called Hospital Radio. So the local hospital in the town in which I lived, which is also the same hospital I was, I was born in, had a radio station, and uh, it piped news and information and took music requests from, from patients, um, and I got involved in, in doing that and kind of really got the bug, if you like. Ah, fascinating,
0: fascinating. So um, tell us about the work you did in the UK with community radio
1: and with the BBC. Yeah, so I mean uh, that was a, a really interesting uh, initiative to kind of work on. I worked for an NGO at uh, the time called uh, CSV, Community Service Volunteers, now called Volunteering Matters. And it's a large nonprofit organization that encourages people to play an active role in their communities and by giving their time as the kind of primary mechanism to do that. And I managed a partnership between CSV and the BBC, and in particular, BBC Local Radio, so 36 local radio stations uh, across England and we would produce uh, broadcasts, events, do kind of various kind of outreach activity designed to inspire people to give their time and get more involved in their community. And that kind of manifested itself in a number of different ways from encouraging people to take up learning opportunities like uh, learning new languages and so forth, but some of the most interesting stuff was around We had a campaign called uh, Dare to Care, which encouraged people to volunteer with organizations that were tackling child poverty issues, and the goal was to to recruit 10,000 new volunteers, which we did. And then back in 2005, uh, which was the, my maths is gonna fail me now, 60th anniversary of the end of World War II, um, we trained up 1,700 volunteer story gatherers across the UK to talk to the older generation about their experience of living through World War II uh, m- might have been in the service or it might have been as as, as children or kind of in, uh, in other roles and their experience was then captured as part of a national archive which now sits with the British Library and those 1,700 volunteers captured 17,000 stories as part of this archive and it was an amazing project to work hmm. on.
0: Hmm. So. What led to your work in Qatar,
1: and what did you do there? Yeah, that probably seems like a bit of a <laughs> bit of a leap, but I, I went from working for that non, uh, nonprofit to working for the communications regulator in the UK, Ofcom, which is the sort of FCC uh, equivalent. And then, of course, in 2011, uh, the Arab Spring happened, um, and there was a huge discussion about the role that technology was playing that, I and mean, in particular of social media as a driver for socioeconomic change and political change. You know we, we heard phrases that have been slightly overstated about the Twitter revolution in, in Egypt and Tunisia and, el- and elsewhere. Um, but there was really a paucity of data and information about, Uh, how social media and technology was being used in that region, and the Qatar government, like a number of other governments in that region, recognized that it needed to change and kind of pivot its economy away from petrochemical uh, emphasis to create a knowledge-based economy, and that digital and technology would kind of underpin that. So they set up a uh, research program or wanted to set up a research program exploring how people were using technology in Qatar but also regionally and then internationally and to use that to inform policy making and indeed investment decisions um, in the country. Uh, and I was very fortunate that I was able to get that gig and do that for, for three years. Hmm. So,
0: okay, so you've, you've, you've worked in the UK, you've worked in Qatar, mm. and then you now decide you're gonna go into the academy. What, yeah. what brought you to the academy?
1: Yeah, it was kind of uh, a combination of, of a number of different factors. I mean, I'd started to do a lot more research work along with kind of ongoing, continued journalistic work whilst working for regulators uh, because they want, to f- they want research to inform their decisions and their policy making. I mean, good regulators operate um, in, in that way. So I'd started to get research experience and a bit of a, a research profile. Continue to work as a journalist. Um, but I was also very conscious of the fact that the thing I enjoyed most in the sort of 20 years kind of prior to, to that point was mentoring other people. Um, I worked with, been very fortunate to, um, hire and work with a bunch of amazing um, young uh, journalists and strategists and policymakers and so forth. And that was the thing I enjoyed the most. and I saw a really strong synergy with that with, with teaching. Um, and I also saw that when I look at kind of key points in my own life, I've been given very lucky breaks by people who've kind of backed me, given me a chance, mentored me, Taken me under their wing, uh, and I, you know, believe in an element of karma and of of giving this back. So it was a kind of combination of you know I've benefited from this. I've also really enjoyed doing this. And how do we kind of merge the two? And the academy feels like a great place to be able to do that.
0: So what attracted you to U of O and the School of Journalism and
1: Communication? Well, the weather, obviously, as a as a British person. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, beyond that, um, I. I think the school has this amazing blend of kind of practitioners and career faculty and uh, tenured and tenure-track uh, staff doing I- amazing um, research work across such a wide variety of different different areas. And whenever I have a conversation with one of my colleagues, I'm incredibly inspired and fired up by, by what they're doing. Uh, and that happened kind of from, from day one. And I continue to feel that sense of kind of energy and invigoration sort of eight years on. And the school has also continued to grow. It's expanded very rapidly during that time. Um, we've also merged or, or kind of branched out into areas like immersive media and games and gaming studies. And the lines between traditional media disciplines have also begin, begun to break down kind of more so more so than ever. So, all of those kind of factors just said, this is a really exciting place to be, there's a really nice West Coast sensibility that kind of chimes very much with my kind of philosophy and vibe and and how I grew up. Um, And then there's this amazing beautiful campus, you know, the first time I set foot in it I was like, this is like walking into a movie set. And I still feel that. It was a movie. It It was was a movie movie set. set. Well, yeah. Yeah, maybe not Animal House, but um, (laughs) but yeah, it's an incredibly inspirational kind of space and place uh, to be, both in terms of just the people but the general kind of atmosphere. Um, and, and I love the fact that there is such emphasis on kind of independence and freedom and that I've basically been allowed to, to some extent, kind of write my own ticket in terms of what I explore and what I teach. And that's an incredible privilege and one I'm, I'm very fortunate to, to have. So
0: you have worked on uh, in not-for-profit radio but you've also
1: worked in commercial radio. Yes, yeah. I have. So. Let's
0: talk a little bit about. I left
1: commission already because I I objected to how much money they were making and how little they were paying. (laughs) That stuff.
0: So you've started to answer my question. So, talk a little bit about what you think are the most significant changes that have happened in the business of media over your career.
1: Yeah. So. I mean, it's unrecognisable from how it was when I kind of started out in 1995. Uh, I was a student at Oxford University studying history, and I spent most of my time not studying history, but setting up and running a campus radio station, which was kind of a new concept um, in in the UK. And when I talk to students about this, I have a, a presentation where I talk about what's changed since I started out. And I now realise. That of course you know I started working before most of them were born which Mm. is a very sobering thought (laughs) Um, and I'll point out well you know I got my first job I was given a pager and I thought I was the man because I had a a, a pager and this is pre-mobile, pre-social networks, uh, pre really kind of like video on demand you know it was not that long ago that Netflix sent you DVDs in the post rather than it being an an enormous and incredible uh, content powerhouse and so the landscape has just changed dramatically, both in terms of where we get our, our content from, um, how we pay for it, uh, but also in terms of the opportunities that there are for content creators and storytellers to be able to just um, go and down a myriad of different paths to, to uh, apply their trade. So talk a little bit about how those changes have impacted
0: the practices of journalism.
1: Yeah, it's impacted it. Um, Uh, Hugely. I mean, one thing I didn't mention in that last answer was also, of course, the business model has also changed dramatically uh, with so much of the money that traditionally used to go to journalism, now migrating towards uh, platforms in the duopoly of Facebook and Google. And that's presented a whole bunch of kind of different different challenges. So I mean so the big changes are kind of fewer people working in newsrooms, but also more places in which you can work, including kind of digital only outlets, the opportunity to do your own thing, which I think that kind of emergence of the creator economy and kind of journalist as entrepreneur, media entrepreneur, I think is a really, really interesting um, space and in that students need to be factoring in from, from day one into the skill set that they are um, developing. And of course the ways in which we tell stories and communicate them are also different. So we're creating content that works for social, that works for mobile, that is kind of often more bite-sized or atomized than it used to be. You know, long form is not dead, but short form is incredibly popular. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, and sometimes there are ways in which you can present long form content by stealth in sort of short form. So there was a good example when Snapchat first started to kind of pick up about probably seven, eight years ago. And uh, Vice at the time was kind of having a real moment with their, with their videos, really spoke to young audiences in terms of its style and subject matter. But people wouldn't necessarily watch a 15, 20 minute documentary on their website or on YouTube, um, but they would watch 30 30 second videos mm-hmm. and just kind of scroll through it and so it was just a way of almost uh, by stealth introducing people to kind of more complex topics and kind of hooking and bringing them in and we have to be constantly across how trends are changing and shaping how audiences behave and then as content creators you know responding uh, to that and going where the audience is and, and meeting their meeting their needs
0: so you say the audience but it seems to me that we we only have audiences now yes and True. that, you know, it used to be that there were, you know, in, in Britain there was the BBC and in the US there were, you know, four channels. Yeah. And you everybody would watch those news channels every night. Everybody yes. in the country would be watching them. Yes. We're in a very different place now. Absolutely. And one of the issues is sort of decline in public trust yeah. uh, for journalism and the media. So yeah. how how are you know you've described what you just described sounds fairly cool, but there's a kind of dark side to everything you've just described. So, <laughs> Obviously the the old media has been scrambling to adjust to this, but it's these changes have had detrimental effects on our public discourse, et cetera. So tell us about where you're at on that and, and what wh- what are the things that are happening out there that give you hope in response to all this?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, there is plenty, I think, to give you hope, but there's also plenty of reason to be despondent, and yes. so it is very much kind of six of one, thank half a dozen you. of the other. Um, I often say to our students, it's a great time for journalism, but not necessarily a great time to be a journalist. Right mm-hmm. now, we have access to so much content and so much great journalism, mm-hmm. but the economics of the industry remain very challenging, and that's a real issue in terms of uh, of salaries and then kind of like other um, elements that, uh, that are part of the kind of package of, of care and, and work and expectations um, from from an employer. Um, and the picture you've described is a global one. So we see through things like Edelman's Trust Barometer, which uh, covers 28 countries around the world, pretty much everywhere year-on-year year, trust is falling in terms of across institutions including media, government, and kind of other uh, public bodies um, and outlets. Um, and redressing that is is hard. Um, and it's hard partly because our media model is so partisan. I think that is that is one of the biggest problems. I mean, you pointed to like this sort of golden halcyon age of like four networks, a shared truth. We all watched the same things and we were exposed to the same news and information. And now there is a myriad of different sources that you can go to. Some are more reputable than others. And we see that with the trust data. I mean, if you look at kind of Gallup's data on trust in journalism, there are huge discrepancies based on your political affiliation in terms of the level of trust that you have um, in, in news media. And so addressing that is incredibly important. Um, and I think there's a number of different kind of steps to, to take to that with that, and, and one of which is we need to do a much better job of explaining what journalism is how it works, um, and through that, helping people to understand the complexities of editorial decision-making, what are some of the differences between opinion versus fact or opinion versus reporting, because in the cable news era, those things are very uh, uh, confused. Um, And we also have to look at kind of those business models, which are very much driven by conflict, particularly, again, just going back to to cable news. that uh, it's a question of you know, who shouts the loudest is the truth that I believe. Uh, and we need to do a lot more um, as a society to talk about how journalism works, why it needs to be supported, and also to try and find kind of more common ground uh, in terms of the discussions that we're having on, on important topics. Of the day. So
0: last year you were a faculty fellow with UO's Agora Journalism Center. Yeah. and I think. You could argue that the the Agora Center is one of the things that it's interested in is responding to this problem that you're talking about. So tell us about the Agora Center and tell us uh, how you've participated in it.
1: Yeah, so the Agora Center is based up at UO, Portland, run by my amazing colleagues Regina Lawrence and Andrew de Rigal. And it started about sort of eight, nine years ago initially to look at journalism innovation and civic engagement, and it's pivoted a little bit then since then to talk more about civic health and local news uh, and the kind of synergy uh, between those. And, and I've been really fortunate that I've been a faculty fellow there um, three times, and that has enabled me to pursue a number of different um, research projects, very much focused the first two at least, on what was happening specifically here in the Pacific Northwest. So I I read a report about uh, local journalism in the Pacific Northwest, uh, who's creating it, shifts in audiences' behavior and so forth, but then looking at transferable lessons um, from that. And then a couple of years after that I did a follow-up where I brought 28 different media companies from Oregon State and Washington State together in a room to talk about what was happening across their industry and then brought students and faculty to be part of that conversation. Many of those journalists had never met, many of those outlets had never met before, and it was really interesting to have a combination of the Seattle Times on the one hand and then somebody like Bike Portland, which is not necessarily an outlet you would think of as being a journalistic outlet but is producing journalistic content, Mm -hmm. talk about their shared struggles in terms of engagement, trust. Monetization, um, uh, uh, responding to technological challenges, and, and so forth, which um, was an amazing conversation. And you know, Agora is very much kind of at the heart of trying to look at. at uh, providing fresh research which can shape and inform the work we're doing as educators but also for funders and for, for newsrooms um, and also promoting kind of new ways of doing journalism. So one of the things we're talking a lot about at the moment is community-centered journalism, the role of, of listening, of trying to encourage audiences to shape the news agenda so it's more bottom-up rather than top-down. So why is local media, why is local news important? Well. I think there's a number of kind of key factors for that. Uh, One of which is, and I think the COVID pandemic, COVID crisis, really kind of um, exemplified that. That on the one hand you could have press conferences coming from the White House and you could have CDC information, but what we really need to know is what does that mean for me locally? What does it mean for the decisions I'm going to make for me, for my family, for my work, um, and, and so forth? And local media is the conduit to be able to translate that into something that is pertinent to your lives. So that's kind of like the first um, um, element. The second thing that I'm really keen on and I've written a little bit about is to talk about the role that local media can play as a proxy for the wider journalism industry. So you mentioned about kind of falling distrust in journalism and so forth. And I remember as as a kid, I would go to events and I would see a local reporter there with their notebook taking pictures and making notes. I got invited to go to, uh, well, my whole class did, to go to the local paper, and we saw how they were printing it, and we saw how they did layout, and we kind of got to understand that that process. For many people, a local journalist is the only journalist they will ever meet. Mm-hmm. So that, by, uh, by proxy, therefore becomes the conduit by which you judge an entire industry. And local journalism plays such an important role in not just providing news and information that is useful for people's day-to-day lives, but also explaining news literacy, how the news works, and giving people a positive experience of the media and journalism, which hopefully will then translate to a, a better perception of the industry as a whole. It's also
0: there been a period where local media has been transmitted. Yes, yeah. I mean. The Register Guard
1: used to be a local family-owned paper.
0: It is no longer that. Yes. So, speak a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, that's one of the biggest challenges that we've seen in, in the U.S. has been the emergence of sort of hedge fund-owned uh, news outlets, including some that have been in families like uh, the Register Guard for over a, over a century. And it's pretty fair to say that the the goals and ambitions of the owners have changed, and we've seen that in the in the journalism that's being produced. And. That's, that's a real challenge, for sure. Um, you know, these papers, and we're mostly talking about papers, but they tend to be a lot thinner than they once were. They're not necessarily publishing every day. They tend to have less experienced um, staff, and those staff are having to produce a volume of content and stories that is far greater than it ever used to be. And that has an impact in terms of the breadth of stories they can cover, the range of sources that they're able to speak to, and, and so forth, so you know, there is that reality. At the same time, we have a very robust um, uh, public media system, uh, in particular through um, uh, PBS and NPR and NPR affiliates, which is something I'm very passionate um, about. Uh, but also, it's never been easier than uh, to create your own work. And that's been one of the kind of profound changes. If you think back to sort of when I started out 25 years ago, how hard it was to produce content. You required incredibly expensive equipment. You usually had to have some sort of license to be able to to broadcast. Now anybody can set up a WordPress blog or Tumblr or set up a podcast or a YouTube channel, a Substack newsletter or any combination of those things and create their own media entity. Um, And that's really exciting. I mean, what we've seen is a democratization of the media which uh, has allowed a thousand flowers uh, to bloom.
0: So you, you mentioned NPR, I know that you are involved with a local NPR station, so tell us yeah. a little bit about your engagement with KLCC.
1: Yeah, so um, uh, so I'm very fortunate that I'm a member of the board for, the, for their foundation, um, and that is really um, designed to raise money for, um, for staff, there and to expand its local news provision. I think one of the things that the station has has realized is that there is a hunger for local news and that as we see other outlets that have historically kind of covered it in depth pull back a little bit in terms of the breadth and depth of reporting that they're doing, that's a business opportunity for, for them. Um, and so there's opportunities to tell stories from the coast, from timber communities, from other places that might not necessarily be uh, covered as, as much as they have been or areas like uh, like Business, for example, oh, we've got this fantastic business podcast, Oregon Rainmakers, uh, that's been launched over the last, last year or so. There's a ton of stories to be told. We just need the resources to, to tell it. And so a, a lot of my work is really um, involved in supporting those efforts to stress the importance of why this matters, um, reiterate the importance the importance and uh, credibility of the work that KLCC does uh, and encourage people to support that. And I think that's really important, that if we believe that journalism matters, we need to put our hands on our pockets and pony up. Um, and it goes back to kind of a question about, well, what kind of society do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a society where you have access to a wide variety of different news from a number of different sources that are um, uh, uh, credible and telling stories that are relevant to you? If you do, you and you are able to, you need to be able to support that and that's not just for your own benefit but also for the wider community that you're a part of.
0: So much of what you've been saying to me today is is a kind of demystifying about the media. And it turns yes. out that you you uh, have organized a demystifying media series at
1: SOJC. So yeah. tell us about that series. Yeah, so that started in my second term here in January 2016. And um, it really stemmed from recognition of the fact that this is a landscape that's changing incredibly fast, incredibly quickly. And Eugene is a wonderful, beautiful, small town, but that's the thing, it's a small town. It's not a big media market. So you're not necessarily going to bump into people who are kind of at the cutting edge of this industry kind of day in, day out in the way that you would do if you were in London or New York or Los Angeles or elsewhere. So we have to find ways to bring that conversation to us. And so that was really the goal of that series uh, and remains the goal of that series to bring in um, leading media scholars and leading practitioners um, from a variety of different places. We've had people from uh, NPR, from Facebook, from universities like um, uh, George Washington, UVA, University of Virginia, a- and elsewhere to talk about their research or to talk about the work that they're doing in terms of uh, content creation and kind of strategies behind that and use that to inform our work in terms of research opportunities, potential partnerships, what we teach in the classroom, and also to show guests who come here, you know, and often, particularly if you're coming from the East Coast, you know, we're asking for three, four, maybe five days of your time to, to be with us, to also show them some of our expertise in terms of what we're doing in terms of our research work, the cutting edge work uh, we're doing in terms of our, our pedagogy in the, in the classroom, and also to perhaps change and shape or reshape perceptions of, of students. I mean, we've seen cases, there was a notorious tweet a few years ago of uh, somebody uh, at the New York Times who basically said, these are the top journalism schools and I will only look at these places for people for internships. And they rightly got lambasted mm-hmm. for that. Um, and uh, But I think there is that kind of uh, perception and so, getting these kind of industry leaders in our classroom with our students then helps them to realise you know, these are we have many students who are on a par with their peers at Columbia, Northwestern, Northeastern, you know, and Mizzou, and any number of other places. And so, it's also not just a great opportunity for us to download uh, from people doing amazing work in, in industry and the academy, but also for them to to leave Eugene and leave Oregon with a very. Uh, positive and enriched knowledge and experience about what we're doing uh, here uh, at the SOJC and at UO.
0: So let's speak a little bit about what we're doing here at the yeah. SOJC, so in addition to being a journalist, uh, uh, a scholar of, of the profession of journalism, you are a teacher. Yes. Um, tell us about a course that you teach, or a couple of courses that you teach in SOJC. Yeah,
1: so um, one of the courses I'm teaching this term, which I really love teaching, is called Social Media for Journalists. and um, it kind of stemmed from, it originally started as a course that I did for study abroad for GEO for students in London. And it kind of stemmed from a recognition of the fact that our students have grown up with social media and digital technology in, in their pockets. But they're not necessarily thinking about how to use that as beyond their kind of circle of friends or their family, how do they use that to tell stories that are relevant to brands or to, to newsrooms or to uh, PR companies? And so that course kind of looks at their digital footprint. It looks at how trends are changing. So we'll, uh, we will do things like, well, um, for example, this term, I'm making, getting my students to make a, a TikTok resume. Uh, we know TikTok has this enormous growth. It's now it has more than one billion users um, around the world. Um, it's a platform that if you're a Gen Z journalist or content creator, people will expect you're proficient with this platform. And about half my students are, half are not. So it forces them to, do, to kind of use this platform, if you like, but also to do so in a way that is useful and helpful to them. You know, How can they, in 30 seconds, in a short form video, sum up their personal brand to the outside world? And it's a really fun assignment to do. So Damien, we're
0: out of time. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. It's a fascinating conversation. Thanks for doing what you do and I hope you keep doing it. Thank you, thanks so much for having me. I've been speaking with Damian Radcliffe, the Carolyn S. Chambers Professor in Journalism at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching.